That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Sky Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. One of the things we like to do here on the podcast is salute the anniversaries of landmark genre films, up until now with the filmmakers who made them. Well, today we're saluting one of the most influential films of my life on a key birthday. It's not Psycho, it's not The Evil Dead, it's not An American Werewolf in London, and no, it's not The Exorcist. Today, we are here to pay homage to the 75th birthday of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. This was one of my favorite movies ever and remains the same. It's funny, it's scary, and it's beautifully made. It takes its monsters seriously and finds its laughs through Bud and Lou. Anyway, obviously none of the people who made the film are still with us 75 years later, but we've brought on board one of our favorite guests to share our celebration. Dana Gould is a comedian, writer, actor, and big fan of fantastic films. So who better to join us in celebration of this milestone in horror comedy? Let us sing the praises of laughs and monsters and the stake through the heart of Universal's classic creatures. Dana, welcome back to the slab. So you're telling me you saw Dracula. Oh no, that's Bud. See, I get it wrong. <laughs> that was that was uh, that was Bud. You're telling me you saw Dracula. Chick, and it's Dracula. Dracula. You're telling me you saw Dracula. <laughs> What's the first time you saw it? Gosh, I saw this as you know, a kid uh, growing up in Massachusetts. I was a monster kid, like everybody listening, and and everybody in this room probably, and uh, it was some, t- you know. It was the monster movie that was on that week. Right. You know? The million dollar movie. Yeah. Or, yeah. And Creature Double Feature we had in in Massachusetts. And um, to me, there was no difference between that and the Wolfman or Frank. He's like, oh, this is the one that is is this week. And it was a comedy, but it didn't. Another monster movie. Yeah. Just another monster movie. Yeah. And, And it does have, now that I'm older and, you know, have written both genres and tried to do a horror comedy on my own there are many ways to do horror comedy uh and more ways to do it incorrectly <laughs> yes uh the monsters by and large play it straight and they don't realize that they're in a comedy right. and 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 bud and bud and lou are, are bud and lou and and this came at a time in their career when they were in the doldrums yeah there yeah. the bloom was off the abbott and costello rose uh, when this feature came along, um, Universal was really looking at two 
of their uh, properties. Their franchise is falling apart. Yes, perfect. Yes, that's exactly right. And they said, uh, well, maybe they'll goose each other if we put them together. And it absolutely reinvigorated Abbott and Costello's career. And Lou did not want to make it. Really? Yeah. It's amazing because they really, it is as well made as any of the Universal Horror movies. And yet it's from a director who did tons of Abbott and Costello movies. He did, he was kind of the, the hired hand director on on the lot at Universal who would do any all kinds of things. Right. Now Buck Privates in nineteen forty one was Universal's biggest grossing movie of that year, starring Abbott and Costello. Here we are only seven years later and their career is kind of hanging in the balance. And one of the other big hits that year was The Wolfman. So those yeah. two franchises did sort of They bisected. Yeah, them. and they and they and they and they sort of peaked together. Right. And uh, and sort of... The Wolfman was kind of the tail end of the first yeah. uh, the first strain of universal horror movies. You can, starting hear, in Dracula women, and, you can hear women getting turned on as we talk about this. Just, <laughs> no, no doubt, yes. <laughs> two dudes talking about Abbott Costello yeah, and the Wolfman. Really, yeah. <laughs> Next, it'll be the Three Stooges. Welcome back to Fort Panty Drop. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, but it is true. You know, those were uh, they. They you know they got Universal through the forties. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, they had the monster. You know, the the Wolfman sort of kicked off the second uh, phase of the horror cycle, and then it became monster parties with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, yeah. and then Ghost of and yeah, and the Mummy, the Mummy cycle. Yeah. Um, the world's slowest walking monster. Yeah. I Stroll remember. for your life. It's yeah. the mummy. Yeah. Here comes the mummy. We better walk a little faster. <laughs> yes. My God, walk for your life. It's the mummy. Um, but great movies. And they're all like yeah. 45 minutes long. They're yeah. easy to watch. <laughs> really quick. Um, Bite size. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, and then when they put them together, what I find interesting about having to custom meet Frankenstein is... I showed it to my girls, my daughters, when they were, you know, like eight and nine, and they laughed at it. And they, you know, you can't get modern kids to watch a black and white movie. Um, And they watched it and they laughed, which I thought was really amazing. And they laughed at Lou Costello. Well, last year, the Cinematheque asked me to choose a black and white movie to host. And I chose Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. And it was sold out ages from my age to your age to children. It's very beloved. And all the way through. And it played like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Sold out crowd, laughing, jumping, screaming, all this. It was just magic. Yeah. And it is funny because Lou Costello on screen is so affable and lovable uh-huh. and off screen was so not. <laughs> really? Oh. I did not know this <clears throat> yeah. about him. He was a real piece of work. Oh, dear. Um, yeah. And... uh but you know, Bud Abbott was much more easygoing and uh, just kind of removed, is what I heard about. Yeah, him. well, yeah. I think that was the only way to deal with <laughs> Lou, really, who was a very difficult. I mean, he had big tragedies in his life, but yeah. uh, uh, you know, difficult personality, bully, narcissist. There are, there is on YouTube outtakes of this movie. I'm sure you. I, I don't I know if you've seen, seen them or not. Them, no. And he is clearly 
saying some stuff to the female actress that today you could not say on a movie set <laughs> and you shouldn't have then yeah you shouldn't have then yeah and it's right there on film you're like did, whoa well not funny cool little, funny little playful affable lou costello yeah yeah and she's just like you can see her even though it's 1949 she's like <laughs> 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 it's really yeah it's amazing this is a movie that 75 years later is still popular mm -hmm. and it's maintained that i mean you are a real hollywood scholar not just of the genre but of your your dr z dr z spoofs <laughs> that just go into all of these movie yeah. stars tv stars everything like that it's a great repository for my mental landfill of useless knowledge <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's so funny and but it wouldn't be so funny if it weren't so knowing and so accurate about you know, all of these right and affectionate, actors and affectionate and, of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's loving and it talks about Schwab's and all of the, uh, you know. Oh, you do read it. You do. Oh, I, absolutely. <laughs> well, I used to live around the corner from Schwab's. The, the one on uh, Crescent Heights? And, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Back in my younger days. Right. And then but, it was the Virgin Megastore and now it's a, a bunch now it's of. Now it's a movie theater and other things. Yeah, it's yeah. a movie theater that nobody goes to. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this, what was it like when you made the move to Hollywood, this fabled Oz of, of your passion? It was, I mean, I wanted to live in L.A. since, I grew up in Massachusetts in a really small little mill town on Cemetery Street. Ooh. I lived at the intersection of Cemetery and Hope streets and uh now there's an ironic corner. i know i have the, and by the way i have the inner i have the sign intersection i have the photo i'm not making it up <laughs> my childhood address was nine cemetery street and um in hopedale massachusetts a very small town wow um uh, home to me and joe perry the oh. lead guitarist for aerosmith yeah and uh his mother was uh the gym teacher at our high school Wow. Uh, and uh, long story longer, uh, <laughs> I grew up, you know, I grew up uh, loving that stuff. But as a kid, I watched The Brady Bunch and Adam 12 and Emergency and uh, Dragnet. And I was like, no, that, I, I want to live there. It just yeah. looked like a great place. It was bright. It was sunny. It was open. I mean, I, I, my family was as far from The Brady Bunch as you could get. So that's what I aspired to. So I just wanted to live where they were and be like them. Uh, and... When I moved to, I lived in San Francisco for two years, and then I moved to Los Angeles. And I loved it from day one, and and still do. I lived down behind my first apartment, was down by the Peterson Auto Museum. Oh, wow, down yeah. in Wilshire. Yeah. And my my girlfriend at the time uh, worked at the May Company, which is now the Academy Museum. Yeah. But at the time, it was still a May Company. Yeah, beautiful yeah. building, kind yeah. of a Art Deco gold architecture from the era. That yeah, and they gorgeous. wanted to, you know, they really wanted to demo that building because it was over 20 years old. So in, in, in L.A., they have an alarm yeah. that goes off when a building is 20 years old. Plow it down and put up a cube. Oh, no, there goes yeah. my house. This yeah. could be a Jersey Mike's. Let's go. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, you know, and it was, it was you know, great from day one. And and. You know, I grew up watching all that stuff, and like I remember, uh, like Mulholland Drive, like and all the every time they'd like drive down that view, like to me that was 
such an unattainable thing, like to be there to see that. Yeah. And now I live off Mulholland. Uh, and, and that's I, the capital of, of film noir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I appreciate it every morning, you know. Last so, night, I live I live over by the Mulholland Tennis Club. Last night, I'm driving home and there was a deer in the middle of the street. Yeah. You know, I've had them walk through my backyard. Yeah. It's yeah. I love it. You hear owls. Yeah, you we hear, get coyotes walking through the backyard yeah. who who live at the edge of my yard. Yeah. So. I was just a you can cut this. It's just a dumb behind the scenes story, but I have photos to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> so my uh you know, this will stun you. I'm a big on Halloween. <laughs> and uh so normally my decorations go up September 1st. Like I have waited and my daughter, uh my my youngest daughter is 14. She's so like, "Dad, just wait till the 15th. Just <laughs> just try to hold on till the 15th." So, I waited till the 15th, so and then I got busy and I couldn't do it. So my wife texted me last night. I was out. And she goes, hey, Molly, her friend, uh, Molly and I are going to put up some Halloween decorations. I go, uh, just just wait. J- just wait. I- I'll do it tomorrow. I promise. She goes, well, well, we'll do a couple things. Don't you worry about it. It'll be fine. <laughs> so I go home and I get out of the car and the garage door is open. And the first thing I look at in the garage is the tubs of Halloween decorations. It's like, oh, no, what have they done? They're still there. It's like, okay, great. And then I walk up to the door and I hear, hey, Dana. Hey, Dana. Come over here. And it's my wife. But she's, and I look, Uh-oh. my wife and her friend were dressed in skeleton outfits, hiding in the trees in the yard. <laughs> and they're like, you didn't see us driving up. We've been standing here for 20 minutes. Hey, <laughs> Dana. <laughs> i planned this prank for seven days it went right in the toilet (laughs) but it's nice to know you married the right person yes because your lack of curiosity (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) yes because i was driving and watching porn on my phone i couldn't see my wife in the yard in a skeleton suit i'm joking but uh nah (laughs) <laughs> no, but uh, but the other uh, the other thing about um, so, yeah, I moved to uh, L.A. and and I always wanted to be in show business. And I just I find the, the history of it f- uh, fast, fascinating. And, you know, it, what's always great about making films or television is it's it's practically impossible to do. Yeah. And increasingly so. Increasingly so. Yes. And you have to learn how to adapt and evolve. Nothing that you see on TV or in the movies, with maybe the exception of Stanley Kubrick's work, is exactly what they shot out, set out to make. Right. It's always... There's a, there's always stories that you know the you're always rolling with punches. Yeah, the uh, the the easiest and ultimate example is that on Jaws the shark didn't work. Right. So it became a movie largely about yellow barrels, um, <laughs> but it worked. You know, yeah. and it made the movie a better movie. You know, in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, they didn't even want Bela Lugosi in the movie. Oh my God. Uh, the uh, Universal just. I, I don't know what he did. <laughs> I mean, he turned down Frankenstein, which they didn't appreciate. Right. But but that gave us Boris Karloff. That gave us Boris Karloff. It was certainly and and he good you know, trade off. And 
they never the famous story is you had mentioned Bela Lugosi to Boris Karloff and his response would always be poor Bela. <laughs> um, I know that on Son of Frankenstein, which whenever people say Bela Lugosi, now again, ladies, before I go on this rant, <laughs> let me just say up front, taken. Okay. So don't go driving by my house. Cause I know the, I know a wealth of information about the son of Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. I know that's going to bring somebody them Somebody got to your there. door. Somebody yeah. got there first. Yeah. Um, but whenever people say Bela Lugosi is a you know, sweaty actor, which you hear, like, he's not, he's amazing. Igor in son of Frankenstein and ghost of Frankenstein. He's steals the show. Yeah. He's fantastic. Broken neck, hanged yeah. unsuccessfully Igor. Yeah, yeah, he's great. And he got paid for Son of Frankenstein a pittance. And Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone found out how much he was getting paid and were horrified. Uh. And they went to whoever was running Universal at the time. By that time, the Lemley's had been bought out and it was a different consortium of business people. And they said halfway through the production, you pay him what we're getting or we're not going to work. We're not going to work. Wow. Yeah. And they just bullied universal. Good into, for them. Yeah. And then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein a couple years later. They didn't even want Bela to do it. They were going to cast an actor named Ian Keith. And I think it was Bella's agent or manager at the time had to go in and go like, look what, Look at the money he made for you people, you know. This is Dracula. Yeah. The character is Dracula. Yeah. You can have the original Dracula. And he's great in it. He's great in it. He's yeah. great in it. And yeah. it's interesting. Glenn Strange took it. Uh, Boris Karloff was fairly old when he made the first Frankenstein in 1931 for a guy to be under pounds of makeup. Yeah. Uh, and so this is like 17 years later. He's certainly not going to want to play uh, yeah. <laughs> the Frankenstein's monster. But Glenn Strange, who'd been on Gunsmoke and, mm -hmm. uh, after that, was, you know, he he had done Frankenstein before and done it successfully. Yeah, he was in all, he was Frankenstein in all the monster rallies. The Ghost of and yeah. all of that. House of. And, but he's really good as Frankenstein's monster in this. He's great. And I had um, the, the, the Aurora model kit is Me too. more Glenn Strange's image on the cover than Karloff's. Yeah, that's a Basil and Gogos painting. It, of like course it, it is, yeah. yeah. But I thought as a kid that Glenn Strange's Frankenstein was scarier than Karloff's. Uh, not as fascinating a character and no, it doesn't have the the pathos that right. karloff has or the sort of the chaplain-esque uh stuff but just in terms of like his look was i thought as a kid was much scarier than uh and i know when abbott and costello meet frankenstein is he's a stunt double sometimes i also think that lon cheney jr is frankenstein in one scene really yeah uh, i did not know that yeah i think it's the scene well it's there is a movie where he is the Wolfman and also Frankenstein. It right. might be Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where he doubles really? for Lugosi in one scene. Oh. Yeah, yeah. You can look. You can. You can look it up, ladies. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and you and it's obvious when you look at it. And I, I think it's. I think it's Evan Costello meet Frankenstein in wow. the scene where. Uh, the Wolfman is trapped to the table, and Frankenstein tries to, and then he spins him around, and the Wolfman is spinning around right, the surgical right, table. Right. 
I believe that's Lon Chaney Jr. is Frankenstein's monster in a stunt guy. And he'd done suit. Frankenstein's monster before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But wh- what was your introduction to Abbott and Costello? For me, I think it was actually their TV show before I saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, you know, with mm-hmm. Sid Melton and, and uh, uh, you know, just their their band of players. Right. The Abbott and Costello show, which was my introduction to them. I had no idea they'd been vaudeville. They'd been super, super movie stars yeah. first. Cause that came burla- they were burlesque comics. I never, you know, as a comedy person, they were, they were only as good to me. They weren't like the Marx Brothers that right. transcended their material. The Marx Brothers were greater than the sum of their parts right. and created something that transcended the quality of the script. And Laurel and Hardy were filled with heart and yeah. sentiment and, and just these deep feelings you don't normally get from a comedy, do you? Yes, agreed. Abbott and Costello, to me, never were only as good as their bits. They were right. only as good as their material. And they were burlesque. You know, the, the candle on Dracula's coffin in this right, movie, right. it's a great bit. It's an old burlesque comedian bit right but they do it well they do it great but that's what we would call out of the trunk right like that's that's an old old bit uh there's one of their movies i forget which one uh where they just do the susquehanna hat company right slowly i turn and they did it again on their tv show yes hilarious bit had yeah. had nothing to do with the movie that they're talking about. Right. Um, uh, on it's funny on trailers from hell, John Landis talks about it, and he goes, yeah. "The movie just stops, and then they <laughs> do the Susquehanna Hat Company, and then the movie starts again." And he's really true. It's exactly what happens. But like, thank yeah, goodness that's really it's funny. There. Can we get back to the story? Well, Johnny Grant was their writer, and so I'm sure he had a trunk full of their routines. Yeah. at his beck and call every time. Yeah, and they were, and you know. Look, I mean, Who's on First is like a comedy classic, and it's been rewritten and redone a, a million times. Uh, it's That's their, you know... Uh, Neo plus ultra. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> wow, well put. I was going to say they're my generation, but you put uh, me yeah, to shame. <laughs> but you shamed me, Mick. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, I mean... The, this movie was a huge hit at the time, really reinvigorated their career. And I think more than... And then they went off on a whole run of uh, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, Abbott and Costello meet the Killer Boris Karloff, Abbott and Costello Each meet the Each one Mummy. doing less box office than the one yes, before. And yes, less, and less funny. This really... Like, this and Buck Privates are probably their two best films. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, I'd yeah. agree. Um, Hold That Ghost is also... Yeah. That's a remake of a Bob Hope movie, basically. Uh, uh, the, the Ghost... Uh, um, breakers? Ghost Breakers, yeah. 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 Hey, no kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, uh, and, and neither of them as funny as The Three Stooges of Haunting, We Will Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Which has one of my favorite tropes in The Three Stooges. I, I get, I'm going to name drop, but I'm going to name drop in a way that your audience will appreciate it. Oh, okay. Uh, I was talking to Sven Gulli, <laughs> uh, uh, Dave Koz, and he was talking about that when he before when he was not always Sven Gulli, he would also as himself 
um, Rich Cause. Dave Cause is a musician. Um, yeah, and, I was thinking. Yeah, there's Rich two Cause. of them. No, yeah, no, there's a Dave Cause that I know, and I always conflate the two. No, I was talking to Rich Cause, and he was saying we would do theme weeks on the Three Stooges because he hosted the Three Stooges. And I said, like, well, what theme do they have outside of slapping each other? <laughs> yeah. And he goes, oh, no, there's lots of themes. Uh, there's a... Uh, um, uh, birds crawling into objects and having them fly. I was like, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> and that's true. And then haunting we will go when the bird crawls into the skull and then the skull is flying around. Yeah. By the way, physiologically not possible. The skull is far too heavy for that bird to get <laughs> yeah. up in the air. <laughs> so I have something to share with you. Oh, I'm very excited. When I was a kid, I met the Three Stooges. That's insane. They came to the local supermarket to do a signing of wow. records. This was around the time of the Three Stooges Meet Hercules. Right. So and it's Curly Joe a, Dorita. Uh, not, yes, Joe Dorita and Mo and Larry. Right. And I have a record that they have all signed, Happy Birthday to Mickey. It's a, That's, it's a comedy routine, and then they plug in the name singing happy birthday to different names and wow i selected happy birthday to mickey and they have all signed it wow do you know drew friedman yeah yeah, yeah. great great artist cartoonist. he would he would buy that off you if you yeah, I'm not <laughs> no, yeah i'm not selling. he does he has a, a, a lot i mean i have some of his work in my house but uh he has a his art for the people unfamiliar with drew friedman he does pointillism. Yeah, beautiful. And it's it's just it's breathtaking. But he does like stunning portraits of Shemp. Yeah. Uh, but know, Shemp at seventy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like really he doesn't do Napoleon. He does yeah. like, you know, And they're Shemp. not flattering portraits. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. But they're absolutely beautiful. He's got books of his portraits and old Jewish comics. Old Jewish comics. And the yeah. the book that really really helped define my sense of humor and i didn't see it until i was already a professional comedian when i saw this book and it really was sort of like getting the you when you go to the eye doctor and they go like better or worse better right, or worse right. better or worse um <laughs> that's also tinder um <laughs> it was like getting the right prescription it was like no this is what i think is funny this is what i think is funny uh, he and his brother have a book called Any Relation to Persons Living or Dead is Purely Coincidental. Oh, yeah. And it's a lot of their, it's a compendium of their old stuff from like Screw Magazine and things like that. But that introduced like Tor Johnson. Oh, yeah. As a comedy character to them. Like, work for Tor. Work for Tor, yeah. Bella Hominy Tor. And yeah. just like, and like, yes, old Bella Lugosi getting calls in the middle of the night from Tor Johnson. <laughs> this is my sense of humor. This yeah. is the stuff that I think is funny. And to my great financial detriment, I have not moved off that. <laughs> <laughs> Investing in original Drew Friedman. Yeah. It's like, Art. I'm not yeah. going to go out of my way. to. I'm going to do a Dr. Zayas talk show. <laughs> I don't care if not everybody gets it. <laughs> what, what made you a monster kid? I was the, I'm the fifth boy in a family of six. Wow. Yeah. And all of my older brothers are athletes and hunters and stuff like that, as is my father. And I just was the runt of the litter mm. uh, and never, uh, never played sports. I mean, I did play sports, but I was never an athlete um, and did not want to hunt or anything like that. 
uh, and just really dug monster movies right out of the gate. I think at the time, a psychiatrist would say it would know better than I would, but monsters are outcasts, and so was I. Yeah, I think that's also why I related to Planet of the Apes so much because he was he was an outcast. He didn't he was in a world that didn't make any sense to him, and that sort of uh, was my child's eye view of my upbringing. I think that's what binds a lot of genre fans together, you know, and one reason that there are horror conventions and there aren't drama or Western conventions. Yeah, and it's why everybody at a horror, and, and it's why you never hear of a fight breaking out at a horror convention. Yeah, yeah. You know, because we're all the same person. Yeah. You know, and they go off into different strains, like monster kids, some of them go off into, a lot of them go off into the business and special effects or or in our case writing right or they go into metal right they go into rock music yeah um and something you don't want your parents to embrace exactly exactly but we're all the we're all the same you know uh um i'm really good friends with uh, rob zombie's bassist uh who the world the world knows him as piggy demon <laughs> uh, I know I'm as Matt, um, yeah. <laughs> and and we don't look on the surface like two guys that would be friends, right? You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the greatest guy on earth. You know, sitting together at Cantor's. Yeah, exactly. But we do all the time. <laughs> you know, uh, he's great, and uh, because as Rob is. Yeah, we're this exactly. Yeah, because underneath we're the same person. Yeah. Yeah, we're the same. We were not cool growing well, what, up. What is it about Abbott and Costello that made them so successful? Because probably more than any other duo in in yeah comedy duos in movies, particularly of that era. Well, it's a, there. Are, you had Martin and Lewis, of course. Yeah, Paramount. Martin and Lewis, I would yeah. probably say were not only bigger than Abbott and Costello ever were. I I yeah, would equate yeah. them with the Marx Brothers in the sense that because of Jerry, they were able to transcend their material and and when yeah. they broke in the early 50s like nobody was bigger yeah than they were but and bud then, and lou coming up through music hall and burlesque were a just a classic textbook definition comedy team um like laurel and hardy you know tall skinny guy short squat guy uh funny guy straight guy although laurel and hardy were both a bit uh had their own characters right in this case it was classic you know, it was basically a ventriloquist act, uh, you know, because so Bud, Bud didn't do much. Well, but, but no, but Bud did. Bud did what ventriloquists always do, which is now don't say that to these nice people. <laughs> you know, he's always the scold that yeah. is always trying to correct the dummy or Lou Costello, who is a giant nine year old. Right. And um, what is the weight that the straight man has to carry? He's got to move it along. I mean, he, it's the, you're a musician. He's the bassist. (laughs) He's keeping the beat. Yeah. And you can't do it without him. Yeah. Uh, That, and that's what, it's amazing that people don't understand that. I've been in situations with bits in film and things where they say, well, can you just cut that part out and go right to the funny part? And I, no. <laughs> then you're a sketch show. But it's yeah. also it would just be like no, because of the setup, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's just uh um 
it you know it is what it is but uh they were huge uh in the 30s and 40s, you know, especially during World War II, they were so big. And I think a lot of it was Lou Costello was a very, very compelling performer. Yeah, but um, the infantilism of his character, you know, the man-child yeah. was so popular, you know? Yeah, and you didn't get that with Hope and Crosby. You didn't get that with, um, I mean, Laurel and Hardy were a little, it was a different character. They were both childlike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, and they were really... Done, they were kind of done by that time. I yeah, yeah. And uh, and it wasn't until Jerry Lewis, you know, and you know, you could say that Lou Costello played a nine year old and Jerry Lewis played a six year old. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, but you know, Jerry Lewis at the when he peaked, nobody had seen anything like that before. Yeah. You know. And then he became once he and Dean Martin split up, he became a director as well. Well, he did those yeah. great Frank Tashwin movies. He did, yeah, and I mean, he was—he's a legendary guy. And he, to me, the fascinating story with with Dean and Jerry is the Nutty Professor, where yeah. Jerry plays Dean and Jerry. Yes, yeah, you know, it's great. That's he that's wanted my to do favorite. both. I remember seeing that in the theater when I was a kid. And just, I could not laugh hard enough yeah. during the, trans, the transformation sequence. Yeah. It was so good. And and Jerry wrote a book called The Complete Filmmaker. Yes, he did. About he invented the video tap. Yeah. yeah. Invent, you know. Um, and, but, but I find just the psychological display of The Nutty Professor where he decided to be both he and Dean Martin. That's like, pretty. I don't need Dean Martin. And then they, when Dean first left, they tried to find different people to be the new Dean. Uh, and one of them was Darren McGavin. Really? And the Deliquit Delinquent. Wow. Was, I didn't realize they were trying to create yeah, a new team. Yeah. Well, they were trying out people to see who would be the straight man to Jerry. And Darren McGavin was right in there. Wow. Well, I'm glad he became the Night Stalker. Yeah, I am then. too. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry he, did well see, on his own. Witnessing things even more horrifying than Jerry Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fascinating guy. I met him once when John Landis was a directing directing a Pepsi commercial for Japan. Uh huh. And so Jerry wouldn't do an American TV commercial, but he did one for Japan. And oh, I didn't know that uh, that John directed Jerry. Yeah, in in that commercial, and it was amazing because by that point in his life, he was a legend. Sure. So he was not being the Jerry he was famous for being, which was not the friendliest or nicest or most generous of yeah. people. But in this case, everybody was genuflecting to him. So he and was he was placated. very nice. And he, Okay, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, he was, Jerry was the opposite of Don Rickles in the sense that Don Rickles played like this, uh, you know, scabrous assassin on stage. <laughs> yes. But then off stage, Don was lovely. Like he was a, a, a delight. Cat. Yeah. Jerry was just the opposite. On stage, he was really sweet, and then off stage, he was a tyrant. Yeah, my my parents got married in Las Vegas, and they went to a show of Martin and Lewis on their honeymoon night. Oh my God! Yeah, um, such a small world. John Landis introduced me to Don Rickles because oh, John Mr. made the Warth. documentary about yeah. him, and we were at a big party, big showbiz party, and I was there, and and and. John said, uh, Don, this is a friend of mine, another uh, stand-up comedian, uh, very good, and a friend of mine, uh, and he introduced me, and, and Don went, what's your, what's your name? 
And I went, Dana Gould. And he goes, I don't care. <laughs> and then I left. And then he goes, and he like put his hand on my knee. And he goes, See, that's my thing. I am always like taking shots at people. You, you got to come up with a thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, no, I'm okay. I got something. Good advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he can't. Like he was Bob Goldthwaite tells a really funny story. They did an episode of Tales from the Crypt together, I believe. Ah. Uh, and you know, like they would, and and like he was always ragging on Goldthwaite on set, like you know, for whatever, just being Don Rickles. And then when they were alone, Don would be like, "Do you, do you, are you taking care of your money? Do you need?" somebody you you gotta take care of your money like he was, he, was, he was just like your dad he was just like really sweet and the only thing about bob that he really couldn't understand was that he wore jeans on stage oh that was the thing that he just couldn't wrap his head around you need to now, remove yourself from the audience i know what it was just like he could different just a different school like i'm like that now like i i see comics on stage in sweats and like, put on a pair of jeans. Come on, Futterman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you always become, you said, you know, whatever you did when you were 26 is what everybody is supposed to do. But uh, I, f- I found that really interesting. And, and, and Lou Costello was one of those personalities, like a, a purportedly a real piece of work, uh, difficult and uh, kind of a bastard off, uh, off camera. What a shame, because... He really fools you. He yeah. plays the sweetest, most lovable guy in the world on screen. Yep, yep. And your heart goes out to him, and, you know, Bud is the bad guy who's always mm-hmm. chastising him. Yeah. yeah, and Bud was just the opposite, like a real sweet guy. Sweet, quiet, yeah. and, yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering what Lon Chaney Jr. was like on that set. I wonder. I, he was famously a drinker. Yep, um, him and Lou. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And you look at these guys, it's like, you know, they're 41, 42 years old, and they're already like, you know, leathered and sweaty. Jowly. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, it's funny. You talk about, the, you mentioned Darren, I mentioned Darren McGavin. I watch The Night Stalker every year. Some yeah. people read Lord of the Rings every year. I watch The Night Stalker. It takes less time. Um, it's 75 minutes. 75 minutes. I can do it, do it during a meal. And uh, we just watched it the other night. We usually watch it to kind of kick off Halloween season. And there's a scene in the like the police department, and it's Darren McGavin, Simon Oakland, and all these character actors that – from the 50s and 60s, right. you know, and the, now it's 1971 and they're all working. But they're, all of them, my wife was like, my God, look at these guys. They look like they had bourbon and the carton of cigarettes for breakfast. <laughs> like these guys are like Simon Oakland was probably 42. Yeah. And he was just like bloated and sweaty and like <laughs> just Marlboros for breakfast. Yeah, all of those guys look like they were 65 years old. Well, it's amazing how long these careers would go. Like Abbott and Costello, you know, uh, embracing the new medium of television. Mm-hmm. And the what was it, the Lux Television Hour or whatever that uh, yes, yeah, they yeah. Co- co-hosted before they had their own half-hour sitcom. Right. Where they had this stable of players. But they just kept going and going, you know, ever-ready ever bunny style. Yeah, and their sitcom was interesting because it was like an anthology but a comedy. It was yeah. really interesting. No one's ever done anything like that since, really. And they were, they played the same people. You know, they were a yeah. comedy duo. That, and that's they what did I mean. not like, change at all. No, the, and they had a perfect, 
combo, you know, their personalities clicked perfectly. You know, these two opposing forces. Yeah. You know, and it's funny when, when two people meet that don't necessarily get along right. as friends, but it just like, I'm, I'm using a musical analogy, but like, you know, you know, many Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey. Yeah. Like they don't, they're not necessarily, they're not best friends. They don't hang out together. They don't hang out at all, but they need each other. Yeah. And they know it. Now they're older and they know it. And they bring out the best in each yeah. other. And yeah. And I think Mick and Keith probably had a bit of that. I know, uh, you know. Uh, John and Paul. John and Paul. Yeah, they were started out as friends, but yeah. then towards the end, yeah, they, it's like we're not hanging out, but we we they needed each other. It was a it was a professional marriage, and uh, it really really worked. And yeah. and that's not always the case. Yeah, um, they, and often, well, rarely does a comedy duo split and they have success afterwards. You know, yeah. Dean and Jerry did, but. You know, there was the 30-foot bride of whatever gap. Uh, the, yes. The the Luke Costello movie. Whenever they would try and do things separately, it never rang true. It never. They were incomplete in some way. Yeah, and Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, I never considered like a classic comedy team because yeah. Bing was just... He wasn't a straight man. He was just there singing. Right. You know, and Bob Hope did the same thing without Bing that he did with him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and the same with Dean and Jerry. Yeah. You know, Dean was kind of a straight man, but more the handsome singer. Yeah. Yeah. But in in that early time, they, you know, or an even better example than, you know, uh, not everybody knows Dean and Jerry, but everybody knows Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo. That's <laughs> that's really the past example. Yeah, <laughs> it is so. And weird. now we're back to Bela Lugosi. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They did the movie too. Uh, but yeah, those guys, I've never seen such a complete copy. Uh, I mean, alarming. Exactly like Al- alarming, yeah. alarming. But without the talent. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah. The movie we're referring to, if you haven't seen it, you really need to look it up. If you've never seen a movie called Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, you have to see it because, believe it or not, that is not Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Yes. They're it's, impersonators. They're impersonators. And the Sammy people that Petrillo. made the movie knew they're, they didn't want their names very big on the poster because they wanted people to just drive by and assume it was it's Dean, Dean and Jerry. Jerry and Bela. <laughs> yeah. And and Sammy Petrillo was discovered by Milton Berle. Uh, and he played... And Milton Berle brought Jerry in to meet him. He did something... He did a sketch on the Milton Berle show. Right. As like Jerry's son or something. Like a weird sketch. I don't know the specifics. Drew Friedman would know. <laughs> yes. Um, bless his heart. And uh, and Jerry thought it was funny. Like, oh my God, this kid is funny. But then when he made a whole movie, like kind of ripping off Jerry, Jerry <laughs> quite understandably lost his shit. <laughs> and uh, they tried to buy the movie back. And, and it was just like, no, this isn't funny anymore. This is your... You're infringing on my business. Yes. And uh, the movie ended up doing being so inconsequential it didn't matter. Well, um, it was a real independent studio. It wasn't yeah, one Poverty of, one Row of, kind of thing. Yeah, but it, exactly. it is, 
I've never seen anything like it in terms of just the shameless... The blatancy. <laughs> yeah, just talk about like a lack of concern for uh, someone's intellectual property. Yeah, it we're would, ripping them off and we're proud of it. <laughs> yeah, it would be like if I made Planet of Some Other Apes. It's just... No, it's similar. It's a guy that looks like Charlton Heston Lyons on a planet of apes. They're different apes. It's yeah. not the same apes. They're gorillas instead. <laughs> yeah. Frankenstein-ish. You can do <laughs> Well, yeah. I've never seen anything that nakedly, uh, flagrantly steals. It just completely steals. I yeah. mean, Sammy Petrillo's career did not last a long time. No, no. That was, that yeah. was, he's, I mean, he's, he's, he's did stuff but yeah that was kind of it yeah that was the hallmark of his career yeah <laughs> that was he had reached the event horizon of his abilities <laughs> <laughs> but at least he has it to look back on or had it i yeah i imagine he's no longer with us but. yes no i think i think they're all different what, what is interesting about you know you said uh Evan costello meet frankenstein really did put a stake in the heart of the universal monster That's what cycle. I wanted to get to. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, well, great yeah. minds. Great minds that yes. like. And sometimes mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it really put an end to the classic monsters. There'd been the run in the 30s with Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, Werewolf of London. Mm -hmm. uh, and then 1941, it was revived with the Wolfman. And there were all the monster right. ha par and, mad parties. Right, but the first one, it's interesting... The, the first one ran out of gas because uh, it wasn't s censorship, but there there was a cultural shift from the business point of view. And I think it was probably the, I don't know if it was the onset of World War II in, in Europe, but or if it was a corporate change at Universal. Uh. And, and I used to know this. I'm ashamed of myself. But that went out. The monster cycle went out the window. People might, were interested. Might in the Hayes office. Yeah. It and might it might been, be the, the contemporary stories were becoming more popular than the historical castles. And yeah. Deanna Durbin ended up being what what Universal made money on was a uh, sort of like older Shirley Temple-ish young girl that made a lot of... Uh, singer. Yeah. Singer, yeah. And they and Andy Hardy movies and, and thus and such. Um, that was MGM. MGM, right. Because that was Judy Garland who then went to make right. Radio Boss. Um, but they, they willfully stopped the horror cycle. And then famously... Uh, a theater re-ran uh, Frankenstein and Dracula in like 39 or 40. Yeah, I think they it was did like, a reissue with real art. Was real the, art, yeah. yeah. And it went through the roof, or as others would say, went through the rough. <laughs> and uh, and they said, oh, maybe we should make these again. And then they the Wolfman kicked off that sort of second cycle. Yeah. And then that ran its course. And Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. You know, they, they had run out of stuff to do with it, so they spoofed it. They took two of their most formerly popular formulations. Right. And tried to jam them together. Right. In the hopes that. But then it came back again. 1954. Uh, 1954, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, and which is weird. It's a throwback to the uh the older universal films but then they had it was the mid 50s and you had all the 
giant bug well, films. Well, starting and, with Godzilla, and, and right. also 1954, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and then you also had all the... Uh, the uh, um, it came from outer space, right? And all the, the Roger so this, Corman picture, right? And, this island I, was this Island Earth. Universal? That was Universal. Yeah, yeah. it was. A, yeah, yeah, they sort of that was a the big budget one. In fact, it it I remember the trailer saying two and a half years in the making, and they treated it like Forbidden Planet. It was right, their Forbidden Planet, big budget, big studio movie, but still a genre film. Yeah, yeah, and that was. It's funny because the creature from the Black Lagoon, which is so many people's. People dig the creature like no other classic monster. I yeah, talk to Dave Scow. I have the creature. I was, I was, <laughs> but but also like other like my business manager's husband, who's like not in the business, uh, writes for the L.A. Times. But like oh, wow. he he loves the creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, that design is magnificent. <laughs> yeah, there's there's and the just woman who designed Millicent it, Patrick. Yeah. yeah, she's just come into fame in the last few years because of the book about her right. designing that. She it, have you really, interviewed the woman that wrote that book? No. Oh, I, yeah, I know her. She's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that that design. It was the first memorable design for a monster in many years. Yeah, probably since the Wolfman. The Wolfman, yeah. 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 So, and it's it, one of the most crucial things about a, a monster movie with legs is a monster that sticks into your psyche. I mean, the Frankenstein monster, when Jack Pierce designed it, was just what a brilliant design it was. And then in the hands of Bud Westmore, I don't know how much of the work he actually did on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but he, yeah, he, he would was run the head in whenever the there was someone in the shop with a camera. That's yeah, what, that's what people he, he ran the department, <laughs> but he didn't necessarily do the work. No. Yeah. And this one, uh, what's interesting about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, I don't know if this was the first time they did it, but. Uh, some of our many makeup artist friends would probably know, was that these are all makeup. Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, more Frankenstein and the Wolfman. These are makeups designed by Jack Pierce. Right. Jack Pierce, by that time, had been shown the door. Yeah. Uh, and where he built up the Frankenstein head with, uh, I think it was Collodion? Collodion, called? yeah. yeah. Um, these were foam rubber appliances the wolfman's nose too was not sculpted putty it was uh a foam rubber appliance uh, and i think which it was a real change hu huge uh, it might have been i don't know if the house ofs had foam rubber or not uh, bill would know or greg yeah. would know um but you know it was the beginning of a new era of uh, monster makeup and it, you know i'm sure it made the actor's life a lot easier yeah, I mean, there were still plenty of people doing it old style. I mean, The Outer Limits still has masks <laughs> rather than makeups. Where yeah, yeah, They're yeah. immobile. But yeah. They're cool. They're great. They're cool, yeah. Also but, speaking of, see, but now you have Dave Scow on, uh, uh -oh. on the brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. From the creature to Outer Limits. Well, he's been on. He's a friend. Yeah, he's, so, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah. He's a friend of everybody. Yeah. But um, yeah, the the whole idea of monster makeup didn't really even get taken seriously by the Academy until 1981 with American Werewolf. Right, and that was because there was an outcry because because it 
The wasn't elephant man. makeup. Well, no, it was because the year before the elephant man uh, did not get anything to recognize its uh, achievement. They considered it or a they special gave, effect. Yeah, or they. I don't know if they gave it a special award. But that was the that was the thing that te- tore it, and yeah. they make up Academy. So we get we need an Oscar, right? And um, so along came American Werewolf. Yeah, perfect time, perfect timing. Yeah, it was yeah. great. But what are your another favorite? another movie that is a perfect distillation of comedy and horror? I right. mean, but, but it I, doesn't play like a comedy. It's I, funny. You no, know, it's I I did a comedy horror series on IFC. Yeah. Um, called Stand Against Evil, yeah. and I stole the <laughs> John Landis algorithm from An American Werewolf in London, um, uh, and I'd like to say I stole it quite blatantly. <laughs> <laughs> Just but, like Sammy Petrillo. <laughs> exactly. I was the Sammy Petrillo. Of, uh, but, but, but John nailed it to the wall. Yeah. That's how you do it. And what it was is the, the monster's are straight as a heart attack and they don't know they're in a comedy. And like in American Werewolf in London and largely in Stand Against Evil, the people don't have to act funny. Right. They just have to act normally. They don't act in a stylized horror movie way. They act the way you would act or I would act. Like Werewolves Within is another one that I think does that combination successfully. Yeah. And of course, The Howling. Uh, yeah, it, it's just people behaving normally in the midst of a supernatural effect is all you need. And then yeah. there there are a litany of people that don't understand it and don't get it right. And the minute the, 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 minute the monsters are wacky, to me, it all goes out yeah. the window. Now, for every rule, people break it brilliantly. What we do in the shadows. Oh, great. You know, and I'm just like, I throw up my hands. Like, well, you broke every rule and it's brilliant. So good yeah, on Shaun you. Shaun of the Dead is another great one. Yeah. Great. Although, yeah, I'll Shaun of the, there's only the scene in when the, the zombie is on the leash and they're throwing records at him. That's really the only scene where the zombies are played for comedic effect. Right, right. Other than that, pr- it's pretty straight. Yeah. Um, that's a great one. That's a great one, yeah. But mostly... When I hear the term horror comedy, it makes me want to run the other way. Just well, because so many of them, people think... They don't know how to do it. People think spoofing something is comedic. And it's easy to just make fun or mock a scene from a famous horror movie. Right. But it's not easy to create a story with wit and surprise and the elements that make a good horror movie and a good comedy yeah and meld them together and uh, the way that the best ones do it so well you, fa- and it's, it's funny you said meld because i went <laughs> to mel uh, yes of course. you know young frankenstein is really perfect it's perfect and yeah. it's i don't think that move i think one of the reasons like mel brooks is a force of nature and you, oh, and, you know he's and, a god yeah and the movie was not his idea. It was Gene Wilder's idea. Yeah. But Mel has such a love of the genre that the film works because it is so in love and is so respectful of its source material. Well, the passion for the source material is so obvious. And I, I, I right. worked with Mel when I wrote The Fly, too. Exa- so you know, yeah. Just a wonderful guy and so knowledgeable about film history about 
the horror genre, particularly the golden age. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he went and found Kenneth Strickfadden's old lab set. You know, yeah. he, he and and that's why that movie works. And I say as a comedy writer who's also written straight horror, you can write a really funny sketch set in the world of horror. It's really hard to write a feature yeah. that sustains itself. And the famous story on Young Frankenstein is that Mel was dead set against putting on the Ritz. Really? Yeah. He thought this is going to, it's too much. It's, it's breaking it's the gonna law. It's going to break yeah. the, yeah, it's going to break the story. It's too much. And, and, you know, this is why Mel is Mel. And he goes, I was completely wrong. I'm so grateful that Gene <laughs> won that fight. Yeah. Um, and it's a and, classic sequence. And it gives that movie what it needs, which is a kick in the act. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a kick true. in the third act. It yeah. boom, it propels it because you need something to come in at the end when like, oh, I know this is fine. Like, like everybody has their bits. You know, Kenny Mars, he's gonna do his bit. You know, and and then before it gets to the point where, all right, now there's gonna be another thing that I've already seen before. No, then he comes in. Same with a movie that didn't intend to be funny but is hilarious. Plan Nine from Outer Space. Yes. Just before you've seen everything, and then Dudley Manlove comes in as Eros, and you get this <laughs> breath of like th that movie is inadvertently structured brilliantly for comedy because it never repeats itself. It's terrible in new ways all the way through the yes. movie. Yes. <laughs> Wonderfully terrible. W watchably <laughs> yeah. terrible, which most movies that try to be campy are not. No, and it will. It's it not trying. Try. It's, it's trying not, to be a good movie. Yeah, it's there's a there's a really brilliant monograph about Plan Nine from Outer Space, written by a woman named Catherine Coldiron, who's uh, has since since I read this, uh, I've had her on my podcast, and she's become a friend, and she nails it. She goes, the thing about Plan Nine from Outer Space that is so magical is for a movie as bad as it is. It thinks it's doing great. Yes. You know, exactly. and it really is. And she's all, she also called it, it's not so much a movie as a filmed attempt to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that it's, says it. Yeah. And, but it's really true. Plan 9 from Outer Space and Glenner Glenda really both. like Astonishing. The, the sincerity of it. Oh, especially Glenner Glenda. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the sheer sincerity of it. Like this... This movie wants to be good. And there and, are movies that try to be campy. And yeah. I don't think any of them work. No. No. I mean, I love John Waters. Oh, but, yeah. But that's but a different, that's a different thing. thing. Yeah, that's, that's a different thing. He knows going in what he's doing. Yeah, he's being transgressive yeah. and he's just stretching yeah. the boundaries and melodramatic yeah. and all of that. And well, we were talking earlier, I one of the things that I do is... Uh, we do a live staged reading of Plan 9 from Outer Space every year. Which and I can't wait to see. Yeah, this year, if you're in the L.A. area, it's October 10th at Largo. You can awesome. get tickets at DanaGould.com. You can find a link there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's like watching it if it was done as a radio play. I narrate it, and I have funny narration and then everybody else is just reading exactly what the script is right just, we don't we don't have to make fun of it 
It's it's right there. The and purple prose of Ed Wood. Yeah, and we have, you know, it's me and Lorraine Newman and Bobcat Goldthwaite and Tom Kenny and Janet Varney and Matt Brong and Rob Zabrecki. I mean, we have a really great cast, and I, I'm leaving people out. And um, it's October 10th at Largo. And so that was a big hit for uh, for me. We do it every year, and we've taken it on the road. And, uh, and, and people have always said, well, you need to find another movie. Just do another bad movie. Easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, looked at a lot of bad movies, but very few are bad in the way that is A, consistently funny, and B, consistently funny because of the spoken word, because right. of the dialogue. Like, yeah, Robot Monster's funny to watch. But it's not good for a reading. It's not good for a reading. <laughs> yeah. um, Glenn or Glenda? Glenn or Glenda, there's not enough dialogue there uh, um but the best description of glenn or glenda i've ever heard was scott alexander's uh, uh who co-wrote the film ed wood who said uh, it's a different film every 10 minutes yes. <laughs> it's, it's really true it, it is uh, true. we found that i married a monster from outer space ah, is is very good it's that's uh, great yeah that would be uh if uh if Plan 9 from Outer Space is the who, I would put that at the kinks. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. It's similar enough. It doesn't quite reach the heights. We opened for the kinks once. Uh, uh, did you days. really? Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, that works really, really well. Uh, yeah, but, it's interesting because that's a good movie. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. But there's, it's also lun- it's a lunacy. It is, um, indeed. Yeah, the, the, the fear of uh, the... the, 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 uh, the this, the sexism in that movie is off the chart. Like, Showgirls is not as sexist as that. Showgirls is another example of a, 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 a bad movie that it's, it's not in the dialogue. It's in the performances that right. you see. And, um, Noni. The, and the, Catherine Coldiron, I'm, I'm plugging her book. Um, she wrote a book called Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Are Important. Uh. And she does a whole section on Showgirls. And... Uh, the, and, she, uh, and she compares it with Staying Alive. And the thing that those two movies have in common is with one exception, one character in one movie, every single character in both of those movies is a sociopath. <laughs> like, no one behaves the way a normal human being would behave in either of those movies. Um, and That's so, for sure. Yeah. But when I was doing Stand Against Evil, I was, I, you know, I had always wanted to do a horror comedy. And I had pitched a show that basically, uh, I I made the mistake of pitching it to Comedy Central. Okay. Um, strike one. Uh, yeah, strike one. Uh, and it was, it was basically, and this was before the show The Walking Dead. Yeah. Uh, but it was... And before Zombieland, it was, what if the cast of Seinfeld was in the world of Night of the Living Dead? What if, you know, four jerks were in a zombie apocalypse? And it played like a sitcom with a zombie apocalypse in the background. Right. And it was never about, and and, and it was one of my favorite things I've ever written. Um, the pilot episode was this guy, they're foraging for food, and he bumps into his old girlfriend, and he can't believe that they're both alive. But then she thinks that he's stalking her, and so he has to go out of his way to let her know that he's not. But then he sees that she's in danger, and she doesn't see the zombie. So, and it's just like a romantic comedy kind of, and uh, and it it didn't go. And it, it's the big 
I wish. Uh, yeah. yeah. Stand Against Evil came about from my desire to still want to do something in in the comedy horror genre. Right. Uh, and not being able to do that show, which was called The Last Larry. It was the last guy on earth Great named time. Larry. Um, and... Um, and I'm not like I'm not inferring that Comedy Central passed on a great show. I, I'm saying it blatantly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, but all those people are gone um, that were that did it. And thank God now we have a network full of game shows and roasts. Yes. Um, but uh, what I took for Stand Against Evil was what if. Jillian Anderson in the X-Files, instead of being partnered with David Duchovny, what if she was partnered with my dad, <laughs> who didn't care? It's not that he did or didn't believe. It's it, just he didn't give a shit. just didn't give a shit. <laughs> um, and from that, I it, I built it out into what became Stand Against Evil. And that was all a the- A very pre- successful horror comedy. Yes, and that, was all, and that was all the premise it needed. Yeah. And, but I had to, with the, with the writers- like say like the, with all the meetings of the writers, it was always the monsters don't know they're in a comedy, which is how it should be. Yeah. The, the monsters don't know they're in. A, and again, I died on that hill. And then uh, what we do in the shadows just came. Go, no, they can know <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> and and it's brilliant and much more successful than my show was. But for, for, for my show to work, that's, that was the rule. And it, and it, and it did work. Great. And Did you find Evan Costello meet Frankenstein to be influential in that philosophy? More than I no, but American Wolf of London for yeah. sure. Um, I realized later when I watched Evan Costello, I was like, oh, you know what? They because I'd watched it as a kid, and then you know you're aware of it, and then I then decades go by. decades go by. You, yeah, you discover girls. <laughs> a couple <laughs> decades go by. And I was showing it to my children, and they were loving it. And then I, by that time, I'd already done the show, and I w- was watching it for the rules. And I was like, oh, yeah, they never – outside of that one scene where yeah. like, they're kind of spinning on the table and it's really not the monster's fault, like they play by the rules. And I don't know that director, Arthur – Charles Barton. Charles yeah. Barton. who He is, did most of the Abbott and Costello movies. He ended up being a utility yeah, director. TV – TV – from Ironside to yeah. Family Affair to you name it. You know. Family Affair. <laughs> um, hello, hello Mr. Again. French. Mr. French. <laughs> um, originally uh, originally to be played by Dr. Z, if you know his story. Uh, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> but uh, but um, he either accidentally did it perfectly or he knew what he was doing. Or somebody knew what they were doing. Somebody knew yeah. what they were doing, yeah. Because... It's tempting to have the Frankenstein monster be funny. Right. But you, again, you go to young Frankenstein, like Mel Brooks. You can't teach it. Right. You know, you just have to know, you know, and you have to have the right, the right actor and the right, you, you have to know where the, the line is. And you, and that's the, the great thing about comedy, and that's why comedy and horror, they're so similar right. in terms of the creative process. Like, I wrote, I'm writing a horror movie, 
And my horror movie, I you write it like a comedy movie. What are the ga- What are the big gags? Right. All right. Now we need to set them up. Well, you're going for a physical response. Uh, and in, uh, laughing and screaming are both. And I said this at every pitch meeting for Stan, so this is just <laughs> like in my head. They're cousins. They are both involuntary reflexes that alleviate tension. Well, the tension is alleviated by Abbott and Costello (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to uh, our favorite monsters. And I want to thank you for this celebration of a movie that meant a lot to me. And And we never even got to the opening animation. The opening animation. By Walter Lentz, who created Woody Woodpecker. Right. He was under contract with Universal. Little gift for the ladies. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Walter Lentz was under contract to Universal, who distributed all the Woody Woodpecker cartoons. And so that's how he became involved in doing the animated title sequence and transformation, uh, Dracula transformation in the movie. You know what it is? I know we're going, but one thing about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, that the reason it works like young Frankenstein. And they're different in terms of their DNA on, Very, how they, yeah. on how they do it. And I don't know if this was intentional in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I know it was in young Frankenstein. Love of the source material. Yes. And 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 I and that might have just been a a studio dictate. I don't know. Yeah. Follow but, the rules of our monsters. Yeah, yeah. But, and you see it in that animation. Like, they loved that world that they had yeah. built and they loved those characters and they knew how to build the visual uh, atmosphere. Yeah. There's no, there's no cynicism in it. And, yeah. you know, you could do a whole, we get, you, you know, you can go into evil dead too. You know, there's so many ways to oh, do yeah. this correctly. Yeah. Um, and, and they're all different in how they do it. Yeah. You know, well, thank goodness for different personalities who create the entertainment we love. Yeah, I mean, the Evil Dead 2 is just a Three Stooges movie with uh, gore instead of slapstick. Exactly, splatstick. Yeah. 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 Well, Dana Gould, thank you so much. Can't wait to see you in Plan 9 yes. on the stage. I told and... you you wouldn't have to talk much. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. It's been great. And we'll do it again soon. Great. Let's put our pants on. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.